I'd like to take his face. She oh. call himself ass kick instead. <laughs> Have you ever been dragged to the sidewalk and beat until you pissed blood? Now, in the name of Zeus's butthole, did you get out of your cell? Oh, no, not the bees! Not the bees! Ah! Oh, no, my eyes! Oh, yeah. Hello, and welcome to We Bought a Mic. We Bought a Nick, a pop culture cage cast, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Adap Cajun, mm-hmm. a.k.a. pod slash cast. That's a- my favorite for like the, the simplicity of it. Mm-hmm. A.k.a. Raising Arab Pod. No, that's not it. I'm you, were, you were going better and better, and then you kind of fell off. I am. Well, sometimes I get menstrual cramps real hard. Hunter. Is that okay I'm... to say? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a line in the movie. So, yes, it is okay. Go, go ahead. It's like respect yourself. the cock. My name is Steven, and I love crawdads. Crawfish, mm. boiling them. <laughs> And that's about when, it. When there weren't no foul, we ate crawdads. When there crawdads. weren't no crawdads, we ate sand. You, you ate sand? sand? <laughs> yeah, we ate sand. Hey, I like some crawdad. Um, I'm Drew, aka Stimmy Neutron, aka Stimmy Turner, aka Stimmy Thick, aka um s- n- n- uh st- stimble shanks. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Stimble Shanks, uh, the COVID cat, the cat on the vaccine train. Yeah, yeah, that used to do all the work for right. me. Okay. <laughs> Steven Baker in the Hello. house. What bam debut? Um here. I met you through the um uh first and final frames pod family, and now you're coming over to our pod family. So this is a real uh bridging of the worlds here that we're creating today. Yeah, we're truly uh, crossing cinematic podcast universe here. So I'm glad to be here and for a great movie, by the way. And I'm excited that you guys are doing this Nick Cage kind of uh, rewatch-a-thon because it kind of kicked me off in a direction of Cage as well. Ah. I'm, uh, you guys got a great list of flicks, so I'm glad I got in for one of my personal favorites, Raising Arizona. Yeah, this is this one's pretty tough to beat. Um, yeah, this is an awesome. This awesome, is art. awesome Cage exhibition film. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, when you we mentioned it uh, off mic before we started the pod, but 1987 has Raising Arizona and Moonstruck in the same year. And at that point, it's like, oh, Nick Cage is like arrived. Like this guy is an A-lister. Or maybe not. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we're doing this journey to find out. He he doesn't really peak until the 90s. Yeah, and this yeah. is very much like 80s right here. Um, but yeah, we uh, we started our journey last week with Moonstruck. And now here we are, uh, the second one, which technically came out six months before Moonstruck, Raising Arizona. Um, and like I mentioned last week with Kira, I reached out uh to you and some of the other first and final frames boys who will hear uh in uh later down the road um and gave you kind of an open uh f- bit of choice based on what you know was already left and you chose this movie um so tell us a little bit about 
why but also just kind of introduce yourself to the to the wabam audience tell us like you know what your your cinematic uh palette is like and how it led you to arizona to yeah, raising Steven, arizona. uh what's your oov <laughs> <laughs> for sure i well i want to specifically first speak on why i chose raising arizona i love the cohen brothers as filmmakers always have and i think that when I got into the Coen brothers, I had never seen Raising Arizona. That was kind of one of the last movies of theirs I saw just because I kind of onboarded a lot of the stuff they did in the 2000s and kind of things are more known for. And then as you kind of dive through the catalog, you get to the ones that people that actually like Coen brothers films actually hold super high and Raising Arizona is up there. So when I got to actually watch the movie for the first time, which it's funny because I think it might have only been three or four years ago when I watched it on Amazon last night, it said start over instead of play. So I was like, Oh, it must've been semi-recent. And yeah, it was a, it was a great time rewatching this movie. I think it gets better every time. It was a movie that at the time that I did see it the first time I, it left a great deal of impression on me. I definitely caught a lot of the great Nicholas cage isms in this movie. And it was probably still to this day up there for one of my favorite Nicholas cage performances up with like kick-ass and I really like him in the rock obviously but those options were chosen beforehand off the list and when it came to raising Arizona I think just like you said earlier you really get the full the full plate the full spread the charcuterie board if you will of Nick Cage I think you get the ups you get the downs you get the you get the funny faces you get the good mannerisms you get just that pure energy that you get when you work with a a filmmaker or two in this situation that really does trust him to do what he wants to do. And I think the Coen brothers are always embracing characters and character actors. So I think hey, that they did yeah. an excellent job with this. They're, movie. Uh, the Coen brothers are a lot like USA network characters. Welcome mm-hmm. only, only their second movie. Yeah. That was going to say, this is right after blood simple came out a couple years earlier, which I mean, kind of like what you were saying with uh, raising Arizona blood simple was a movie that like, I respected more than I enjoyed the first time that I saw it, but I just rewatched it a couple months ago at this point. And like, it already is just kind of growing on my list of Coen brothers films. So you had already seen raising Arizona. No, I had not this? seen raising okay, Arizona. Cause this I, was my first time. Yeah. This was my first time too. Oh, wow. I had, oh, wow. I had, I had caught it on cable a few times, even like as a kid. And I always was like, wow, this is like on USA. Characters, welcome. Um, I didn't. I was. It, it was sort of an introductory uh, thing to like the fact that adult movies don't have to be adult. Like you know, they they can be silly and childish. Oh, this yeah. is like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, it's a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. When we talk about like John Goodman's character, yeah, that movie, character, and then also the the way that the baby's safety is treated so flippantly. Those to me point toward it just being a cartoon. Yeah, like yeah. You, this could have been animated. It's kind of crazy that the Coens don't have more movies with Nick Cage because he is like such he He's embodies perfect, his like eyes are very close together that's all that they <laughs> care about when they cast you he embodies like every classic cohen's character that's like quintessential to all of their movies so i've, Steve, I've actually oh go on no i was just gonna ask you you said that uh this was your kind of like top maybe three cage movies yeah uh tell us a little bit why like what is it about his performance because i think that he doesn't fully cage out as much as we seem like he's a, a little bit more subdued throughout most of this. So is maybe that why? Cause it's kind of like a more kind of sweet, tender performance. Yeah, I think. So I watched this movie with somebody and it was kind of nice to see it through their eyes as well. When, you know, 
he's kind of like a sexy guy in this movie. And I feel like not a lot of people on board Nick Cage emotionally like that. So I think that when you get to see him playing this like bad boyish character with a heart of gold, I do think that that kind of is brought purely due to the Coen brothers incredible use of drama and comedy. But for me, I think that when I, when I think about Nick Cage in this movie, I'm just more like, so to bring up to your point earlier, kind of why he hasn't worked with the Coen brothers that much. I've actually heard that they didn't like working with Nick Cage that much because he had yeah. way too many ideas. So I think they were good at kind of stifling those classic Nick Cage he, ideas. Nick Cage is a guy with a lot of ideas. <laughs> yeah, he comes to the table and he's like, yo, I got some plays I want to like, run. You know, yeah. this, this works for me. You know, he's going full ISO ball. Just he's like, here, to, give, yeah. me, give me this scene and just everybody else clear out. Yeah, he's, he's like, he's like, yo, Cohen's clear out. You're playing zone on me right now, but I'm not trying. <laughs> yeah. I'm not interested at all. He treats every project like it's the before trilogy, but like <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the director does not know. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know. So it is, it is funny like that. There's like several scenes in this film where Nicolas Cage is like the straight man. Like just thinking about the whole sequence with Glenn and Dot when they show up, Nick Cage is the most normal person in all of yeah. those scenes. And you're like, what yeah. is this that I'm seeing? And it's good. And he shows uh, a decent amount of control. I mean, I, there's obviously great moments where he goes, dum diddy -de dum dum when he's going full cage but i think that this is kind of like you more laugh at cage sometimes because we all know cage so well when he goes kind of those highs and hits those moments it's almost like one of the favorite movies of cage that i reference kick-ass like he has a lot of those great dramatic moments but then he is able to go full cage but it kind of almost takes you out of it if it wasn't for how heightened that movie is in general and i think that yeah. this movie is so heightened with its comedy and he's able to do some weird things, but it almost fits in the subtext of the movie a little bit better exactly. than it can in like so, an other film. It's so heightened, right? Like this movie obviously is way, way, way before uh, Edgar Wright, but it reminded me a lot of Edgar mm -hmm. Wright, the energy of the, the almost like kind of erratic uh, approach, because nowadays when you think of a comedy, it, it, what has taken over the genre is like the Apitalian yeah. model where well, it's just like, so turn the camera on and yeah. improvise. This is a very directed comedy. It's still a comedy, mm -hmm. but it's very directed, which only nowadays Edgar Wright is like the one doing in the 21st century. I can't really think of anyone doing a very uh, John direct. Francis Daly. Um, oh, with game night. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good example. Should, should he make another film? <laughs> Never know. But you be. get what I'm saying. No, about no. It. Like, well, it's here's very, the thing about that stylized, but it's not like it's not like too much, you know? No, not at all. It's it's also it's not like Edgar Wright stylized where like like I love Edgar Wright, but a lot of his uh, shots. It's flashy. Well, especially earlier in in his career, it it was like like film student on Adderall stuff, you know, where it was like, dude, if I do a mash cut with this and this, then they'll, and then they're like, I do a, a mirroring thing in the third act, then everyone's going to notice like not necessarily Edgar, but um, I, I wrote down I'm a whole sure thing about this. this. I'm sure this impacted a lot of Edgar Wright's career. Absolutely. Um, generally, the writing of this movie I wanted to talk about, because like like you said, there, you obviously watching a comedy from back then, you want to compare it to like what we have now, studio comedies. Uh, so obviously the directing is going to be like vastly different, but also the writing. I want to get more movies like this because it's actually a really tricky type of comedy writing in which there's actually no full-time straight man. Never. 
Mm-hmm. Like every, this is an absurd world. Every character in it is insane in their own particular way. And it all has to mesh. Classic Coens. It's very, very hard to write that. Like another example would be like Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Yeah. You know, or, uh, or like it's, it's always sunny. Something yeah, that's like going something like that, like zany. like Zoolander, if you want to go a little more modern. But like even once you get to like Todd Phillips's early comedies, like old school, you have your your Luke Wilson or whoever that is playing full time straight man, full time normal guy who might get fucked up and then be silly. I you think, know, I think that one of the reasons why this movie is like on the top tier of Coen's as far as comedy goes is because it's so early on in their filmography that they haven't developed that cynical edge that has now come to define like every Coen brothers film. Like now every Coen brother movie like has some humor in it, but it's also like behind this, like very sarcastic veil. And a lot of this movie feels like they were trying to make things a little bit more genuine, which it's harder. You can't like have a heart and then also like, be constantly like winking at the audience that this is all bullshit. Yeah. It's kind of like a stand up bit that ends with a heartful end instead of like a cynical end where most of their comedies do go forward. It's like, they always kind of have like a, a darker turn or a darker tone. I mean, Fargo in some instances can be considered a comedy, right? But then at the same time you have these kind of, weirder kind of darker kind of sometimes open-ended endings where this movie kind of really wraps itself up and it has a a good lesson at the end of it as well. And I think that they were really going for something polar opposite to blood simple. And they really wanted to make something to also show off the sophomore slump and make sure that they push that as far away as they could as a term compared to them, because they wanted to do something so specific and cartoonish, even down to the Woody Woodpecker tattoo that obviously like, kind of represents the nature of the cartoonish fun of the movie. I mean, the entire third act is almost better than any Marvel movie that I've seen fighting a bad guy, you know, like that slapstick action towards the the way. Yeah. The way that that action is shot is like remarkably good. (laughs) It's so cohesive. It's so trackable during this time in their career. So they come off of blood simple, which by the way, like, that duality, those two sides of the coin that carries through their entire career, like yeah. going from such a kind of straightforward noir piece that's a kind of very dark to this zany, wacky shit. That is what defines like all of their movies mm-hmm. moving forward. And they're always bouncing back and forth between those. It's two almost things. like they do a one for you, one for me, like every time where right. just, they just constantly are going. All, it's all for them. Where they're yeah, like, it's yeah, all for no, Joel or <laughs> Ethan. It's like Joel, Ethan, Joel, Ethan. Yeah. And then Francis McDormand tosses her hat in sometimes. We'll like, what about me? We'll do an inside Lewin Davis, but then also we're going to do hail Caesar right after. I was, I was listening to Joel Cohen on the, the team Deacons podcast, which I really recommend it's Roger Deacons and his wife just started a podcast in quarantine and they have all their professional friends on. So they have all these crazy good interviews and they had Joel Cohen on and there's so many good tidbits in there. But one of the best things that he says is that when they made blood simple, they didn't have any notes from the studio. They were able to have final cut on that movie and they use that as precedent for every contract, for every deal, for every production since. And so they're like, what are, what is another director that can say that they don't need to take a studio note? James Cameron. Yeah. I got final cut on your first movie. And then you never have to take a studio note again. Like that's insane. 
That's insane. And they just built a career from that. And they're like the only directors that I can think of that are like fully in auteur mode uh, and able to operate at that level consistently. And, you know, there's a couple of duds here and there, you know, not every movie they make is a masterpiece, but this being their second movie, it kind of knocked me on my ass a little bit because I was like, oh shit, I thought this was going to be like, like watered down Coen's. And it's not. It's like everything that I love about them is in this movie. Maybe it's not, uh, you know, one of their masterpieces, but it's it's not like uh, diluted in any way. I, I, I fucking love the shit out of it. I mean, when you start your filmography with the run that the Coens had, like it's at that point, like you deserve to just have final cut for everything. When It's just like, OK, you did. Back to back to back to back, uh, Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink. Like, I still need to see all those. I haven't seen uh, those Hunt are all blind Proxy spots. Is the only one uh, I've missed, oh. but and then Fargo and Big Lebowski right after that. It's like, yeah, you can just do whatever you yeah. want forever. Like, we're just trust blindly into have, you. Have you seen all those early Coens, Stephen? Hudsucker, Miller's. Hudsucker, which actually there's um, a funny bit in this movie where there's like multiple times Hudsucker like appears on cans and whatnot as well as like a little reference, the low, the low down Coen Brothers references within the movie. But yeah, I've seen all of those movies. Barton Fink probably being my favorite of those first four outside of Raising Arizona. And then we really want to see that. Obviously, The Big Lebowski is a classic for anybody our age and people that have existed for all time, because I do think that that movie still is one of the most rewatchables um, Fargo that they, too. that they possibly have Fargo too. But I, I Fargo is a fun rewatch, but at the same time, I do think that the rewatchability of the big Lebowski as just a hangout movie holds favor to that. The big Lebowski is like a sick movie for me, you know, and like, you just kind of feel like shit and you're just like, I just want to like lay in bed and just put on like, yeah. I just want to have like comfort food, but I, on um, my television, I, I That's tweeted this. Lebowski this is a hangover is. movie for you. Yes. A yeah. thousand percent. This is a hangover movie. Steven, what's your hangover double feature? Hangover double feature. Boogie Nights and then Boogie Nights. <laughs> boogie Nights and then Boogie Nights. No. Uh, and after that might, seven hours, you no longer have no, a hangover. No, by, by Hangover know. double feature, I mean which two Hangover movies <laughs> oh, okay, of, okay. of the three. <laughs> I'm going to go I'm gonna go two to one. No. Um, uh, hangover prob- three and then Joker. <laughs> and Joker, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'd probably say Swingers is definitely in there for me because it's an Ooh, ultimate kind yeah. of chill, oh, relax. Yeah. Money, baby. Fun, very money, baby. I'd probably go swingers and then I'd probably throw something on a little bit more. Uh, I wouldn't even call it thought provoking, but a little bit more cinematic. So I might go with like a let's let's relax. Like maybe let's do like a before sunset or something just to feel oh. some emotions. Pick me up. <laughs> you know, that's make me yeah, feel see, something. That's exactly why Ratatouille is one of mine. <laughs> yes. yeah. I just want to feel alive. Yeah. And also it's it has to be the later one because I have to be able to look at food. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like you can't just throw on chef when you're about to puke. Absolutely not. I need no, motivation to walk. Chef. Yeah. Yeah. Raising Arizona would be a really good one though, I think. It's, uh, yeah, it's a tight 90. Yeah, it's it's so tight. It's yeah, zany, I said that before I started. Yeah. Was like 95 minutes. Yeah. Mm, that's what we like. I, I have a whole letterbox list that's the 90 minute club. And this is yeah. going right in there because it's just so perfect. And it, Did, oh, I can't remember. Is the Snyder cut? 
gonna make the 90 minute club or I, um, I can't remember yeah it'll it'll take up like five slots yeah, if you, if you yeah. just split it into three acts then <laughs> the first the first act i'm waiting i'm waiting for topher grace's cut of the snyder cut yeah it'll Probably. be in black and white it, it'll be like vertical nine by 16 yeah um anyway in instagram story mode we the cohen's are you know oh generational filmmakers we're talking about nick cage here folks oh yeah um, this is an inst- interesting one for Kate. They, well, this is, I'd say, like near perfect utilization of him because he gets to use his big stupid face. He like, plays H I. The yeah, the Cohen, you can call yeah, him high. The, the Coens like acknowledge that he looks funny. They also use his physicality, which I wish more filmmakers would do. He has this weird lankiness to him while still like being like ostensibly a strong man. He's he moves very weirdly. Yeah. <laughs> like the this I mean it's most displayed in the scene the insanely long chase sequence where he's running with the diapers. It's, the way he's running all amazing. hunched over with with the uh, thing on his head it's so wildly funny the pantyhose yeah and he just has like this resigned expression the whole time like yeah this is well here i go so (laughs) i'm gonna get these huggies and all the cash since you brought up that scene uh i think we've i think that we talked about this on podcast before about heat two uh i want the coen brothers to make heat two just make it but make it a farce of heat but with de niro and pacino no 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 no. okay with the age cages (laughs) i would do <laughs> that's it we have straight man nick cage and then a movie with two nick cages nick who cages. could believe such mm-hmm. a thing yeah it's not like we'll get to that mm-hmm. one later mm-hmm. um so like i said this movie came out just a few months before moonstruck it did not make as much money as moonstruck moonstruck had that share bump um, and that oscar and bump. it's also just like way more this is wide very appeal. Indie. Oh, yes. well, this isn't in, also yeah. got re-released mm. around the oscars because of uh because it got nominated for a shit test well stuff, that so. that reminds me of the point that i was going to make earlier which is when you brought up the whole like ending sequence that the because the, there, there's the middle chase which yeah. by the way i thought that was going to be the high point of the movie and then we get like the whole climax sequence but um the Coens were like buddy buddies with Sam Raimi. Like they all had a house together and probably Raimi. did like quaaludes and shit. Oh, what a, a lot. fun house. And they were like trying to one up each other with their filmmaking. So that was them trying to do an evil dead type thing. But also that's incredible. I Raimi, love this movie even more now. Raimi, when he did evil dead, he was also kind of trying to do a Cohen's thing. It was like very parallel. That makes would, me so happy as somebody who evil dead is my favorite horror franchise ever. And just one of my favorite franchises in general, the original trilogy of evil dead that fills me with so much joy to hear that. I think one of the Coens actually was an assistant director on one of the evil deads as well. Yeah. I'm like I said, they were yeah. buddy buddies. Yeah. And I really do think that, it's it's almost funny, right? Like if you do think of Evil Dead One and Blood Simple as like, hey, we're taking a serious kind of like approach, and then if you go from there to Evil Dead Two and Raising Arizona, like it's both of their kind of almost slapstick comedy movies mm-hmm. in a weird way. It's it's beautiful, and like we mentioned earlier, Cage never made a movie with the Cones again, and it was because of of what you said, Seaman. Like he, yeah, he's fucking annoying. He like, wouldn't. He wouldn't. Um, vibe with the fact that the Coens wanted to stick to what they wrote. They're like, we spent so much time on this screenplay. You have to just stick to what we wrote. Yeah. And, it's, and they got into arguments. It's it's glued together so tightly. The voiceover in this, uh, I think Cage does a, a like very good job. It's not, it's not a given that VO work is going to be great. 
crazy that this movie opens with like an 11 minute so prologue much, so yeah, much yeah. what I, a wild so choice. that's that's incredible i i was gonna say do you think that it was like a nick cage nick cage was like i will walk from this movie <laughs> if i can't put uh at the end of this letter that i'm writing to holly hunter from herbert <laughs> that was like his one choice and like the cones are like fuck it all right yeah you can put herbert in there i don't care um, so yeah, we get this crazy 11 minute prologue, um, with and, a fat oh, title card at the end. Yeah. 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 Which looks great. Still holds yeah, up. And you're like, Oh, it's movie's over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was great. Also just real quick. I wanted to mention the movie was a hit, uh, only $2 million budget made 29 million. Yeah. So even though it wasn't like no, it a landed. smashing hit, it, uh, good indie hit. Yeah. yeah, I and I feel for like for yeah. early Coens, it might have been their biggest return because I don't think all that o- other early Cohen stuff uh, garnered that much cash until like on what investment. Fargo, right? Fargo, Fargo, yeah, Fink, right? Barton Fink, yeah, I, I feel think like Barton played Fink well. was a pretty, uh, pretty big success. I don't know what the budget was on Barton Fink. I mean, I'm assuming that they had a little bit more money to play around with, so I don't know what. Oh no, Barton Fink uh, only made. It, Barton Fink was a bomb. It made 6.2 at the box office on a $9 million budget. Wow. Oh, that's man. kind Shit. of wild to me because that seems like a pretty like mass appeal movie. It's a little bit niche, but like, so is every Coen Brothers movie? I mean, at, at least for that era, right? Like when you're looking at, um, you know, anything before Fargo, because Fargo is a hit, like Fargo made 50 million. Um, and everything before that, I just think fell flat. And then after Fargo, like Lebowski made 46. Actually, I feel like Lebowski, I feel like 46 for Lebowski is low. Yeah, I feel like it's be, low well, I mean, it, it was I think that it was added like, to like the cult status of le, that movie. Yeah. It was also, yeah, because it was sort of uh, pigeonholed as like a disappointment. When exactly. Came. And then, yep. I'm then, looking at their thing, like a lot of their early movies were bombs, which you are maybe because like they were all of their early movies were well respected by critics. They just didn't make money. But like Miller's Crossing had a budget between 10 and 14 million and the box office only made five. Roger Ebert did not like this movie that much. Um, oh, Roger. Sis, Siskel was a little higher on it. See, By the way, Siskel high boy. Hey. <laughs> have, you guys, have you guys ever watched like the actual show yeah uh, video clips yeah, of yeah. That. it's awesome the intro sequence so good i i i just rewatched it and i forgot that they had because i've seen the clips of them talking to each other but i forgot they had like an intro to their show <laughs> it's the funniest like most retro 80 shit um so let's let's dive into the movie so we get this this um this big opening sequence that like sets up the movie and it sets it up really beautifully and the fact that we get Holly Hunter's Ed uh, in this intro as she, the cop who's taking his photo. She's so good. I'm, I've been in love with Holly Hunter since I was like five. Because of and, the Incredibles? Yeah, because that she got dump truck. <laughs> that dump truck. No, I've just, I've always fucking loved Holly Hunter since I was like a little kid. I was like, who is that woman? I love her. That's I want to marry this Hunter, woman. that's weird. <laughs> I was that's a little not, kid and not, I love, I, I still to this day, like I love Holly. Holly Hunter is one of my favorite actors. Oh, she's, yeah, doesn't. she's an incredible actress. Very versatile, but that's such a weird. Yeah, no, kid. like whenever I was a little kid, like I was just in no, love you're with Holly Hunter. To, like, you're supposed to be Googling like Jessica Alba boob <laughs> when you're a little kid. 
I just rewatched. I'm like Megan Fox Transformers. <laughs> I just rewatched uh, Batman v Superman, and she plays like the senator <laughs> who gets the the pee pee jar, and then oh, gets yeah. blown up by wheelchair yeah. Scoot McNary. She she won the Oscar for that, right? <laughs> That was it. That was her Oscar. I was like, God, what happened to you, Holly Hunter? Hey, she's she's around though. She's producing. Oh, she is. Yeah, she's been. That's she kind of hasn't really been doing as much acting stuff lately because she has become a little bit more of a producer. She was in Succession. Yeah, role. brother. That's yeah. what I'm talking. She about. was really good in Succession. Um, you seen yeah. Succession, Steven? I'm halfway through season one right now. I'm okay. about she's to fucking in, she's take in the my second. headphones off. <laughs> okay. No, okay. She's, no, no, no. She's in the second season. I'll tell you though, if you're even if you like. How do you feel about it? I, I like it. So it's funny because it's my roommate and one of my best friend's favorite shows. And then when I get to finally watch it, because I've been like kind of chopping through as many of the HBO, you know, big time shows. I just finished The Sopranos a couple months back and I've seen a fair amount of them. So now I'm like, OK, Succession's the most modern current one that everyone seems to be on the train of. And I like the energy of it. I was kind of like afraid it was almost going to be kind of like Adam McKay kind of big shorty too much for me with all the like, we got to talk really fast and we're fucking cool. But it's actually like a I'm waiting for them to call each other dude and bro to become funny to me. And right now it's just annoying. So I'm waiting. No, to love which, the show. Episode, which episode? Uh, episode six, I think. Come on. So listen, no, I was going to say because uh, midway through season one, I was sort of like halfway in, halfway out on the show. And season two, it became maybe my favorite show on television. And it, that's it, what I'm trying to get to. All yeah. of the, so thank it you. has all the, yeah, you're right that it has a bunch of little ticks that are really bothering It has, them. it has McKayisms. You're yeah. like, that's, that's they do, they improve a lot of it. Anyway, Holly Hunter good. Uh, she's the mom and big sick. Uh, that. Jonathan Goodman. Oh, I forgot that. Uh, yeah. Uh, a large man by the name of Jonathan Goodman uh, comes out of the ground. His birth <laughs> from the earth. Literally. Original, original Shawshank shot. I feel like. I mean, that, that is so long before Shawshank, and he has the original. Like, yeah. And then he reaches down and he pulls a leg out. That's a Sam Raimi <laughs> shot right there. That that practical it, leg. Are, it's, so it's, it's so unbelievably funny. And then they're both just screaming, like basically like sixteen Every, each other while standing. Everybody in this movie is a vibe. Like yeah. they're all it's weird that it fits that they all gel, like all of the performances gel, because when you compare Holly Hunter, what she's doing to what John Goodman is doing, it's like, how is that even the same? It's movie? the Coens, man, because yeah. they're all like they seem like these pieces where each of them is the most exaggerated version of this character. But because this is such a movie that's just so filled with all of these crazy characters, I mean, it's Fargo. It's all of it, yep. their best works that they just have. People where it's like, which person is in a different movie from everybody else? Everybody in this movie is in a different movie from other people in the same scene that but they're sharing, but it all works. It's it's like I said, it's it's the hardest type of comedy writing is is uh, a hyper realized world where no character is permanent. There are scenes where Cage is the straight man to Holly Hunter. There are scenes where Holly Hunter is to Cage. There are scenes where Holly Hunter is to the to the fucking, you know, Goodman. There are scenes where Goodman is to Cage. Like yeah. everyone is is taking shifts being the straight man in a scene. It's so like the the brain you have to have to pull that off is is beyond me. In addition to the fact that like some of the best jokes in the movie are in the VO especially early on it like the the stylized the prologue. nature of it yeah it's it's wildly well written it almost was giving me like king of the hill energy where it's so immensely simple and yet 
no one would ever write anything that way who actually were stupid. You yeah. know, <laughs> well, it, it's also going back to the Cohen's thing. It's also just the way it not only the way is it written, but the way it's shot, too, because that has a lot to do with it, too. Going back to the the Deacons podcast, another thing that Joel Cohen says, and obviously like Deacons just shoot so many of their movies is they're not the they're the opposite of um, Fincher. Like Fincher does like 90 takes. The Coens are just like they're kind of one and done. But, you know, you hear stories of like Clint Eastwood being one and done because he like just doesn't give a fuck about anything and, you know, hopes to die soon. <laughs> um, but the the Coens, they just they're so confident, um, but also not perfectionist. And they just get the one shot that they want. And that's it. And that comes through. In so many of these sequences where you just there's no fluff, like there's no filler, like you just get the one shot. There's that moment in the prologue where he puts the ring on her finger as he's taking his uh, fingerprints Mm -hmm. and it's all done in one take without like cutting back and forth to their faces or anything like that. It's just so succinct. Yeah, they're it's so precise. Their their uh montage work was very uh Edgar Wright. Like you could you could see <laughs> the draw there. The efficiency though of doing all of that in one single setup without having to like in, in what other another director would have spent an entire day working on they get it done in a quarter of the time and it's it just comes through i mean it's it's yeah their their pre-pro work is like immense um and of course like that all stems from the fact that they're writing the scripts like they're you know they're all those legendary stories i remember even when when i was a kid there would be in entertainment weekly there'd be some story like the coen brothers will have days where all they come up with for their script is one word and you know what it's the right one (laughs) like huggies (laughs) huggies (laughs) That's what uh, that's what makes all over that just uh, reminds me of whenever I was doing uh, my Oscar watch through for this past year. Yeah. Whenever it was no country uh, versus there will be blood and like going back and reading a ton of the articles, like comparing the movies and the filmmakers and stuff like that, because in a lot of ways, Paul Thomas Anderson and the Coen brothers are like cut from the same cloth. They're cut from the same cloth, but they come at this cloth from completely different. Yeah. One, one, uh, is on uppers, the others on downers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and now PTA is Oscarless. So are you happy? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> there will be blood is one of my favorite movies of all time. The man has no Oscar. I. Why are you looking at me while you're saying this? Give him the fucking Oscar for Phantom Thread. You're I don't sort know. of. You're sort of our Oscar like ambassador. <laughs> so you just you yell at me. The Do you think that I should I get a vote? <laughs> Um, you might as well, man. Who knows? I'm voting for Hillbilly Elegy for Best Picture. <laughs> um, anyways, can we talk about Trey Wilson as Nathan Arizona? Yeah, he's great. Um, um, we the, haven't even talked about the plot of this movie at all. So, yet. OK, he, I was er, going to say Ernest that. is getting there. <laughs> <laughs> I had I had no idea. Like I said, I hadn't seen this movie before. I had no idea that they stole the baby. <laughs> It's literally it's right on the poster, too. And I didn't I, think I, I, I knew there was knew, a baby. But... I didn't know it was theft. <laughs> so. The first note I wrote down, like the first thing I wrote down is losing my shit at Nick Cage overrun with five babies. <laughs> so good. That's so good. That's Almost like a horror movie. It makes you like babies. And then at the same time, you're like, oh, this is too much for me to handle. And just it, the way that it's shot, they look like monsters. It's all from like the low angles, but they're babies. So it's like just the yeah. camera's on the floor as a baby's just crawling towards it. Harry. 
Barry, Larry, Gary, Gary, Gary. with two R's, and Nathan Jr. <laughs> yeah, I want um Heat too, but it's Nick Cage versus Five Babies. <laughs> no, he has to rob the bank with Five Babies. <laughs> yeah. That scene made me lose my fucking mind because it just keeps going and going and going. And you're like, what is it's this so guy long, doing? And babies just keep appearing. Like they just look at and there's like all four there and then he turns around. And they're like just all like about to climb down the stairs. They're like, what the Cohen scripts must have a lot of like interior hallway continuous. <laughs> like, <laughs> they have a lot of that going on. You guys um, need like a like a bracket for this whole Nick Cage watch through where you oh. actually like take Nick Cage versus and find out like which one is the worst thing he ever goes up against because I think the five babies might be one of the best like Nick Cage versus that might be a one that's seed a, that's a great that be, idea yeah. Nick Cage versus the fear of settling down the settling down uh, the Nick fear Cage of the declaration of independence yeah the fear of being burned alive in a chair Nick Cage, Nick Cage versus um his Chad other Nick Cage brother yeah. <laughs> The other thing that's I actually a, we're gonna we're gonna have to do that. Yeah. Figure it out because well, I'm telling you, this is be a one scene movies that we're doing. We're it's perfectly <laughs> well, we, set up for a we bracket. have we have some categories that we'll get to at the end. Nick that, Cage Nick Cage versus a motorcycle demon who he imagined and is entirely real. It is him. <laughs> yeah, and is a physical manifestation of his inner demons that is also very real in this world. <laughs> What when we get the the biker up the from the apocalypse? I was like Ghost Rider. Yeah, this is actually a prequel to Ghost Rider. I yeah. was hoping it would be like an, uh, I thought it was going to be Nick. It's, it's, <laughs> he 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 pulls the pins and then he gets transported to hell and then we start Ghost Rider at the end of the movie when he blows up. <laughs> hell yes. Um. So I, the I other mean, thing, yeah, go, the go other, for it. The other thing I wrote down was just that the shot of him. Uh, at the end of that sequence from the ladder staring through the window into the room as the mom is holding the baby and you get the POV of the baby and it's just Nick Cage staring at the baby through the window mm. holding onto the ladder. That is perfection. That's it's kind of horrifying. It's like uh, in Parasite when you see the spoilers for Parasite for best picture. <laughs> when you Parasite. see the eyes. Um, when you see the eyes poking through from the yeah. basement. Yeah. That's Nick Cage's energy. Um, Trey Wilson. What, so I, I was a biker. No, he's no, plays he's Nathan the, Arizona. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I. I didn't know that that was going to like be a actual like real character in the movie. Well, he seems like outside the, of the story. Here's until the, the thing: end. is that he is the largest manufacturer of unpainted furniture uh, in the <laughs> Southwest region. So you should have known that he was going to be a pretty big character in the story. Where else are you going to get your unpainted furniture from? Or else his name isn't Nathan Arizona. It's a great commercial. I love the commercial. Um. I love the the shot of him and his wife just sitting there listening to all the commotion upstairs and just the way it's composed with them on their chairs, reading the paper and whatnot. And she's reading that book, which, by the way, the line of Nick Cage throwing the book after he steals the baby and he's like, here are the instructions. <laughs> so good. As if it's just a how to raise baby. I have a question for you guys. Do we think that um, that the filmmaker, that the production studio uh, that made National Treasure saw Raising Arizona, saw Nick Cage's ability to steal a baby and said, that's the man that we want to try and steal the Declaration of Independence. Sure. 
I mean, he doesn't. Sure. He doesn't do that great of that's, a job. That's it's how no, you set me Ernie, up. You go, yes, and, <laughs> and then I was yeah. setting us up for a whole little bit there, and you just tried to answer it. And he doesn't know. really steal the baby as well as he steals the Declaration of Independence. You tell me what's a greater heist: stealing the, de- the, baby or the Declaration, Declaration of Independence. Independence. Oh, it is the greater heist. I will. I will attest. <laughs> Um, Nick Kate, who's oh Ed Harris is the the big bad in, mm. in National Treasure. That's a good one. And Ed the guy from The Hangover. He's I guess he is. Well, he's he's, he's, yeah. he's his pal. He's his yeah, pal. they're homies, but he tends to get in the way. Doug. Yeah, Doug. <laughs> and then in the second one, he like wrote a book and has like a Lambo, but like you're still like ah, you're Doug. You don't matter anyway. <laughs> You could tell me literally anything about Book of Secrets, and I just believe you because I don't remember kidnaps, a single thought he about. He kidnaps that movie. the president of the United States. <laughs> he really does, and they're pals. Yeah, and then the president, like, like literally, like three minutes into it, the president's like, "I'm in." How? Like, <laughs> it's so cool. How confident you are you? How confident are you guys that Donald Trump never said at a regional uh, thing like I will never get stolen away as president of the United States I when think, he was campaigning? I think. Would the, you put um, like? Like like a twenty percent chance that that happened, or yeah, I, I I buy it. I think I think that the National Treasure movies are the result of Nick Cage, his, like him giving ideas like on shoot days, and those ideas being accepted <laughs> with open all, arms. It's, it's all the things Nick Cage wanted to buy during his shitty tax era, but couldn't buy. He's like, I want to buy the Declaration of Independence. I need it, sir. Can you I at least look at it? And George W. Yeah. Bush was like. Nick, we've been over this. You cannot buy the Declaration of Independence. You cannot buy America. How do you guys feel about uh, his uh, accent, his accent work in this? As people who are, we are from the Southwest, but from That's just solid. I mean, Stephen, you're closer to Arizona than we are. We're in Florida. So you know I, Arizona better than we do. It's funny. I have a whole anecdote about Arizona that I think might be inappropriate, but I've, I've, Gone to Arizona. I've dated no. Hold from on, Arizona. Hold on. I no, tell the you state of Arizona. Like this. This you got to a... do the anecdote. <laughs> okay, I I know a lot of Arizona about Arizona through by proxy, right? Like I know of it through friends that have lived there. I've dated people that are from Arizona. I've gone to Arizona a couple times driving through to go to Texas. I've spent a lot of time in the Southwest actually because my family, my you know, not my core family, but my extended family's all in Texas and Houston. So you pass through, you pass through. And I do think like, this is kind of the Coen brothers commentary as a lot of their movies are on like the flyover state culture. And I think that this is probably their greatest hit on that as well as like, it is like a strange place. Like I love the line where he's like, oh, what city exactly are they in, in Arizona? They say Tempe or something. Uh, I don't something. think it's explicit. I mean, we just get a lot of desert. Yeah. In the prologue when he's like, we moved to the suburbs of Tempe and then it's just like three trailers in the middle of the desert. I'm like, that's <laughs> a good bit. You know what I mean? Like, I really do think <laughs> that <suburbs>. like, <laughs> and it's just, it, it has that feeling of, it is truly it's a, it's what the Coens do the best, in my opinion. And that is what, like, I think they nail in this movie specifically is like they make modern folk tales almost. And this yeah. movie is essentially like a folk tale. And I think that where they choose to set those movies. And I was thinking about this the other night. It's like how many movies are actually like shot and take place in Arizona? You know, not a lot. So to kind of use that as the backdrop, a place where a lot of people might have an idea of but not know and kind of like 
make it almost this hillbilly feature, which some of Arizona is, don't get me wrong, but for the most part, it's like colleges and people fucking filming TikToks. This shit is like in this era, like the fact that it's just convenience stores, suburbs, streets, you don't get a cityscape. You don't get anything like that. It's like a very, uh, you can almost believe in the craziness that's going on. What happened? Yeah. You're like, you know, I'm like not, that. I wasn't checking in on what was going on back then. Maybe this happened. <laughs> yeah. You never know. Like it sounds almost believable in a weird way and they're like heightening it. But at the same time, it's like almost yeah. unbelievable. Especially that's, the yeah, that's that's a good call. It also, I think, for all like the lack of cynicism that the movie has compared to other Cohen movies, they very intentionally like open it up almost immediately by uh, placing it in Reagan's America specifically. Yes, <laughs> like they bring that up um, like within I think a minute, yeah. and they do that again in Lebowski with HW. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, like very, very early on in the movie about doing that. <laughs> Reagan's America, there's like. Everybody says he's a nice guy. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it, yeah, it's it's really awesome. Maybe he surrounds it, himself with idiots. <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it turned out to be almost the opposite of that. Steven, so you're talking about, you know, Arizona and the types of people that may or may not steal a baby. <laughs> Most of people in Arizona would steal a baby. I want to make that clear. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So. We have a lot you, of Arizona listeners. Uh, zero that. Pinocchios on this claim by the Cohen <laughs> brothers. Well, if do the you, Pinocchio is unpainted, then they might sell it. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like the Cohen brothers are like dragon people here? Like, are they, is this an, a loving representation? Like it, it cause dragging yeah. people. Okay. Yeah. Like, like I, thought, I was like dragging people. I was like being Jews in Arizona. What are you about? to <laughs> <talk> about? <laughs> like, like, I mean, I can understand that perspective, but I, you know, they were making a movie about it. Cause there's, there's certain movies where you can tell that the filmmakers are like very directly making fun of a certain type of American, of a certain group of people. And I, I didn't feel like they were really, I mean, obviously this movie is extremely like heightened and ridiculous, but I didn't feel like they were like really doing jabs or anything like no. that. It's not like Fargo and that like whole region and how they're just kind of like almost spoofing what people would be like there. I think raising Arizona kind of takes the locale and uses it as a beautiful Western backdrop to this almost laughable criminal story low stakes everything classic coen brothers film but at the same time i think that they're taking the the arizona that people like and using it almost as like a mysterious place known as ben it's like when people read the odyssey when you're like young mm -hmm. you're like greek is like greece is crazy you know there's like cyclops and all this shit but it's like when you take arizona and just kind of place like a a story that is so like insignificant it kind of like makes the focus of it, not the location, not the story, but kind of like the craziness that happens in a place that is kind of unknown. Yeah. It's, it's basically the exact appeal of making a Western film. Yeah. <laughs> like is the, you know, the fact that there it's lawless, there are no rules. Anything could happen. This is, this has a lot more common in, with traditional Westerns than I initially thought. I mean, this is when the Coens developed their love for just the Western. They did aesthetic. so many, like so many. And even like their films that aren't as traditional Westerns like this, or even something like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which has like so many Western overtones, even though it's not a Western. It's, it's the a, Odyssey. 
Yeah, it's that, but like, it just kind of like, this is where they really developed that love of just like, ah, the final front, just like the great unknown. And there's something like restful about it as well, which I think in my favorite shot of the movie, they really portray well with the two lawn chairs overlooking the sunset as the sun goes down. And I think that that's like the ultimate way of like representing Americana, which I think they do do so well, especially in this movie with the trailer park and like how people have jobs, but the jobs are like slightly more significant than your job. But it's still like a fuck you to you because you're like lower on the ranking than me. And it's kind of like they do, just like you said, with like Reagan's America and even um, Nick Cage's cellmate, who's probably been in there since JFK was in office because he has a photo of JFK next to him in the prison cell. It's kind of like a lot of social commentary as well on like what's going on. And I think the Coens have always kind of done that, but I feel like it's really hyper-focused during this movie. It is. It's, it's hyper-focused and yet it doesn't uh, overtake the movie itself. Like it's still, it's, I think there's some still like someone stupid enough that they would not notice a single thing that we're talking about. It's all in the prologue. Everything you just mentioned is part of the prologue. Like that's the genius of starting the movie with this extended prologue yeah, sequence you, l- listener you, you gotta pay attention for the prologue <laughs> this yeah. this one is is worth it but it, it's it's the way it's done it's almost like i i hate to make this comparison but go with me here it's almost like the prologue to the fellowship of the ring mm. where it's just like it's tone setting <laughs> it's like and this is where you are in history where like you feel you feel like you are already in the thick of it like you don't have to like you're already watching the movie. And by the time the title card comes up, it's like, oh, yeah, I thought I was already in the movie. That's true, because we're not getting a life story of we're like we're still seeing him as he is in the movie, even at the beginning of the prologue. Like mm-hmm. we're seeing him being a career criminal. Like he's yeah. not removed from that when the movie starts. He's he, still that guy. He doesn't use live ammunition. To, it's not that's an armed robbery. Point. Yeah. That's a key point. Yeah, he isn't. He isn't actually like want to kill people. He's just like, yeah, yeah. Do if anything, Dude, he wants to get locked up to hang out with Holly Hunter. Look, here's the thing: is that just like in Heat for Nick Cage, the action is the juice. Also, yes, Stop. but also <laughs> I just kept thinking like this is a story about white America because if that man were black, he would be shot be so much. <laughs> Well, I mean, when you see the cops try to shoot at him, it seems like these aren't the most yeah, uh, very the most competent uh, police officers ever. Yeah. They shoot at him like, I don't know, like 50 times in the middle chase I sequence mean, and not a, a single we're bullet. We're watching a cartoon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. it's, we got to We got to talk about this chase sequence because I there's the one so, in the middle. It's amazing. It, yeah, it, it, it almost it almost disrupted things for me because it was such a peak that like like getting to the next one was almost tougher than getting to the first one. Right. For me because I was like, that was like some of the best cinema I've seen in a well, long and also, time. And once again, it's set up in the uh, in the uh, like prologue before we actually get into the movie because he's just like now i'm like finding myself like the salad days are over i now have to just uh like yeah we got to have a mac demarco reference in here um but uh demarco stephen (laughs) baker aka smack demarco aka george count bands yeah go on i didn't get to do my aks earlier (laughs) okay there we go um 
But like, he just like, yeah, I just drive by convenience stores. I'm not even on the way home anymore. And then he just goes in just to go buy some fucking diapers. That just juice. Like, really? Yeah, and got truly fucking... like Holly Hunter's right in front of him. Like, <laughs> yeah, like he, it's, it's so stupid. He's stupid as fuck. <laughs> like, I, I mean, every single person in this movie, much like a lot of Cohen movies is stupid as shit. So the, the, the fact that this movie's only 90 minutes really lends itself really well to the the ebb and the flow of this because that prologue is such high energy shit that when you come out of that you feel like the movie is almost grinding to a halt mm-hmm. when Francis McDormand comes in with Glenn and you have all these kids like writing fart on the wall and shit uh, can i can i confess something after the movie, I had to get on IMDb because I was like, I thought Frances McDormand was in this. Yeah, it's her. Yeah. I know she's like, she's like so, her second or third it's role. It's so ever. transformative. I've just never seen her with any amount of makeup on. I'm realizing. Have you started, have you started the, the, the college fund? <laughs> you don't, you don't have he a. Got, he's got to get his dip tech. Wait, you don't have the dip tech head? Um, I think she, she really is like covered up in this movie. When I it took, same thing as you, is I was watching the flick and like, She's on screen for two minutes, and I'm like, "Is that Frances McDormand?" And yeah, I was like, "Oh my!" God. And then I was like, "Oh, it's a Coen Brothers movie, of course it is." But like, she she really goes for like, "I'm not Frances McDormand in this movie," you know what I mean? And I think it's like the first time she yeah. really nails it. Um, She's got big hair. It, the big hair wig. is huge. She, it's like classic. It, it is such look. a it, it is such a non type role. Well, the type that we've come to know her for, of course, because it's before all that. But um, also her husband Sam McMurray is really a uh, all-time that guy guy yeah, yeah what's what's um what's the guy from back to the future what? i'm for, i'm blanking on I, the name. which the guy dad, which guy the yeah, dad. The dad. oh crispin oh, glover fucking crispin very crispin. crispin glover energy I would, from this guy no i want to kill crispin glover i don't like that guy <laughs> this guy's kind of shitty too he's like yeah, hey but, you want to well, swing baby no that's this, that, this that guy reveal is, is, is unbelievable <laughs> such a good First that's all that's when nick cage truly has to be the straight guy in the movie yeah. so no, when that, that guy is hitting scene, him with all that yeah that entire scene is just like he is just so like just on like it's nick cage on one which he doesn't really get to do much throughout this yeah, run of but he, when the baby gets about. stolen by john goodman that's the closest that we get to like full cage out <laughs> and I was waiting for that the whole movie. But I think he, he holds most, himself back. Yeah, I mean, almost like borderline the most Nick Cage thing is just in the opening prologue with just him like he keeps getting arrested. And he's just like, Will you marry me? <laughs> like that's just some his hair really, is like his hair is just like fully up. Yeah, I didn't shower before the pod, so I could have like similar Nick Cage type hair where it's like, is are you balding or what is that? So this this chase sequence with the pantyhose on the face that is again perfection like like there are just so many like perfect uses of nick cage and him wearing this pantyhose on his face is just fucking amazing and um that whole foot chase is just amazing and yeah again the point that i was trying to get at is that there is that lull in the Francis McDormand Glenn bit but we don't stay in that too long that's just enough downtime to get us into the the robbery mm-hmm. into the chase so that it doesn't feel like this movie is like going 100 miles per hour nonstop. it's just like let's get a little bit of downtime yeah. here and then we'll get you into just, this midpoint yeah it's it's not necessarily like 
if it were any move, other movie, it wouldn't feel like a lull. It's just like this, the seismograph of this movie is, is way different than a typical movie. It's mm-hmm. not like your, you know, it's not like your classic uh, Campbell style, like rising action, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it, it's a lot more unsteady, but in a steady manner because it's all done with intent. Well, you need, exactly. You need that downtime. Yeah, of course. Because you want to feel in order to feel the highs, you need a little bit of lows or otherwise it's all going to feel like overload. So it just comes around at the right time and you get tons of handheld shots in there and the energy. It's like frenetic and erratic. It's it's just really, really well done. And um, you get the introduction. I don't remember if this was before or after, but the introduction of the dream sequence with the biker. Um, of the apocalypse, aka Ghost Rider. Um, there's this POV shot of the camera outside of the house going up the ladder into the window, oh, like over a car, into yeah. the woman's screaming mouth. Yeah. And I was just like, holy fuck. This is some <laughs> this is some crazy ass Sam Sam Raimi so, yeah, evil dead shit. That's yeah. like that's like PTA whipping his, you know, huge dong out in Boogie Nights with the tracking shot kind of vibe to Scorsese. He's like, yo, check my dick out, bro. I, I got a huge dick too, which has been like, you know, used so many times with like a director one up someone with a, a one or a yeah. tracking shot. It's exactly. like this is them trying to get back over at Raimi with their, oh, we're gonna do the evil dead low to the ground kind of zooming fast shot do you know that, how they filmed that shot actually Ernest? i i i was just wondering like I, how the fuck did they like, do so it the way it they, goes over the car it's like it almost feels suspended so they filmed it backwards oh of course so they so they went down the ladder and they filmed everything in reverse that whole shot at least the second part over the fountain but i don't really see the cut in there and That's, and and just it's so crazy, like the fact that they went over the ladder. And I, I re- just watched this thing on YouTube like two nights ago about Sam Raimi building his like steady cam rig that they use. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it's two people that have to operate it on one piece of wood. You know, it's yeah, like some it's- real like old school YouTube shit, like the stuff we all used to look up on how to make like special effects and whatnot. But it it's looks like, amazing. It's so good in this movie. It's like they really do do a great job because there's almost like because it's not the woods like Raimi uses it. There's like so like more little in the frame that it's almost more at the same mm-hmm. time it holds up man i mean 1987 this movie is what 40 something years old almost or almost 40 years old that's fucked up or it's, no what it turned how do you do, you do <laughs> math I, yeah. this movie was in 1987 <laughs> yeah you do it backwards so this movie is 33 years okay. 34 years old so it'll turn 40 Fuck, in 2027 20, yes mm-hmm. there we go Correct. this movie's a millennial <laughs> um it, yeah that's one thing i did write down was like you don't you don't see the like the considerations a lot of filmmakers make especially indie filmmakers is to lower difficulty level because difficulty level often equates with budget right like especially in action sequences yeah. or like very like involved uh like long takes like that they don't give a shit like they find the workaround they find like he's like doing it backwards however it needs to get done to get done like they write first and then they figure out how they're going to do it later i mean at the end of the day this is a comedy and that goes to the point that i made at the beginning of how like when you're trying to make a comedy in the 21st century you're not going to go through all this trouble that the cohen's went through and and that's why we don't get that's why Edgar Wright is like the only person that I could think of that is still trying to do a comedy 
with that level of kind of like cinematic heft and work and 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 the athleticism well i mean even if you do do it athletic you just use digital abilities like you can just like rely on at the end of the day i can just like do this digitally and just like have it look like the camera is gonna go right into somebody's mouth like i mean shit people started doing that in like 20 years i mean look at panic room panic room is that to like pushed to in a little bit of the wrong direction where it's just like it's so uber athletic that it almost takes you out but of again, the movie that you're watching. Not a comedy. When yes. we're talking yeah, about yeah. the just straight up comedies, like that's the thing that I admire the most about this movie is that it prioritizes being a comedy first. Yeah. And then it it just adds all of these other p- pieces to that. So what I think, because you mentioned Edgar Wright, obviously, and I think the Coens do a great job here of like not only subverting expectations because you hear this is probably like a crime movie coming from the Coen brothers who just did blood simple and you go and see this movie and you're like, yo, what the fuck is this? But it's still enjoyable. I think Edgar Wright subverts genre with his movies to do the comedy where this movie really sets up its own universe and comedy within it. It's almost like, Oh, this isn't a zombie action, you know, end of the world type picture. This is like an actual like, small lower level story that's subverting your expectations upon coming into it and finding you to fall in love with kind of what they're telling you, which I think is a, a great thing that a lot of people try to do. And I think that the Coen brothers are really uh, excel at that w- along their entire career. So let's, let's get into the ending. So we get this, um, this big kind of showdown with Mr. Biker of the apocalypse, man. Yeah, well, right before that, we have yeah. Uh, oh, the we got to talk. We, we yeah, got to talk Gale to Robert. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Which we got to talk way, more about John Goodman and um, uh, William Forsythe. The, the best, the best bit of them is when they're doing their hair in the bathroom. <laughs> the way they're combing and cool. Yeah, after their they hair. break out, they're yeah. just like <laughs> covered in <laughs> shit. The like, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, they're so disgusting. They leave they just, the can on the fucking sink. Yeah, and yeah, well, and then they just go uh, into their house and just sit on the couch yeah. and drink Budweiser. <laughs> shit. And even earlier in the movie, you know, when they come home and they bring uh, Nathan Jr. home, they or junior as he becomes known as throughout the movie, they like put him on the couch and they're like, he's got to sit on that perfect spot. And he's like, we got a family unit here, but it, <laughs> it's like, then all of a sudden these guys come in and obviously like the ultimate shot of Holly Hunter turning that corner and showing like, you know, Nick Cage almost immersed in his old life, that classic Coen brothers POV shot where there it's the character looking through and you can almost see just Nick Cage in that shot. And as she turns that corner with the black wall, you can actually see like obviously John Goodman and what's the other guy? Scythes? What's his like? Um, his name is uh it's uh well, I mean his William William Forsyth is William his name Forsyth, is, uh, yeah. Evel. Yeah, but jo- John Evel. Goodman, William Forsyth. So you see that and it's like almost like I mean, Holly Hunter in that whole scene is like where they're like, who wears the pants in this relationship kind mm-hmm. of vibe? And Nick Cage tries so hard to act hard, but obviously he knows um, that his whole life base is around her. William Forsyth, seeing him now is horrifying. Very <laughs> much so. Does not look be- like 33 years have passed. It just, it's so, ins- it's not even that he looks like horrible for his age. He just, he looks like a Russian mobster now. He doesn't, <laughs> it's so like, yeah, hey, he's going to be in The Rock. Yeah, we'll get to that one. Hey, no. Um, man, it, yeah. It, I mean, this, this movie has a deep ass bench because I, 
you know, I was sort of thinking like, all right, this this is the guy who's going to be stealing lines from my John Goodman in the whole movie. And he really, really holds his own because also you end up with the dynamic because for most of the movie, they are the same guy. And then uh, Forsyth becomes the mom and Goodman becomes yeah. the dad. Yeah. Which is, but they you know, both forget the baby. By the way, I multiple I times. I could spend a movie in that world. No, I, that's, <laughs> yeah. I have been one of my notes is just like, can I just get a Raising Arizona two, but it's just like following yeah. these two and, characters. And it's all about this baby who's like miraculously not dying. <laughs> and, and just them screaming the entire film. Yeah, all they do is <laughs> yell no lines. <laughs> but that the highs and the lows of that performance, right, where they can get so kind of tender and sweet and also just extremely blow up. And and Nick Cage does that too. Um, it's just that you know, he's not as kind of high and low as these two guys get. And, and, and Goodman's first time working with the Coens in this as well. And then I think one of the best scenes and some of the most classic Coen brothers comedy we get in this whole movie is the bank robbery scene where they kind of walk in and they're like, freeze, uh, get down. And they're like, well, which one is it? Sir? What do you want? Do you want me to freeze, to freeze down? And, and that's like, like, oh, my God, where are the tellers? Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> we're down these here. Acids? <laughs> and they're like, we're down here. Like, that is the purest that's- form of, like, Cohen comedy in that whole movie with, like, yeah, this okay. random ass dude they probably found in Arizona to play this, like, old man. And it's just like cut for cut. So good. The whole bank robbery. And then they do those, like, classic shots again when the, you know, the biker of the apocalypse comes in. And I think that that final set piece is really, like well executed because you feel for the baby the entire time before leading up to that and then you're like where are the main characters and they almost like take a detour from that whole main plot for like 20 minutes of the movie i, I was love- almost thinking like is the baby gonna die i the thought he should no, die. So that's when it comes cartoon that's when it becomes was- looney tunes woody woodpecker is when that exactly. baby is just always okay yeah exactly i, was- I thought it was gonna die because i'm looking at the lens of uh, now 30 years of Cohen brothers and looking at it cynically, I'm like, yeah, yeah this baby's going to fucking die. I'm going to have to watch a baby death in no. the middle of this fucking movie to bring everything down. Yeah. But speaking toward that, because yeah, I said earlier that like, that's when it really became a cartoon for me because the, the stakes of death went out the window there. Like, yeah, they were already pretty gone with the way Nick Cage just like kind of shimmied his way out of the, <laughs> with, with the diapers. He runs like he has roller skates on, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, but um, oh yeah, and also the dogs are chasing him. (laughs) Best use of dogs in a chase scene in any movie ever. I'm Mm. calling it right here. So good. Another thing that adds to that point where you just know, like, that everything's going to kind of be okay in the end is that uh, John Goodman and William Forsyth they don't just like leave the baby once, they leave him twice. And the first time when that happens in the gas station, I was like a little bit like, like, oh, like, kind of haha kind of a thing like i see what's going on here like going full slapstick and then it really is like the comedy with repetition thing where then the second time i was like oh this is incredible that this just happened again yeah it it rocks it does like it it sort of was messing with my emotions at that point because like i'm i'm just so used to the stakes being heightened and like the fact that that baby was not dying (laughs) this is so so often was almost making me think like well Ultimately, I was getting like that Coen Brothers nihilism. Well, I guess none of this matters if that baby can't die. Um, but I obviously, afraid for baby his could, life. Yeah, because my God, the way they're treating it, it's falling off the car. But they still make you feel like they care about him. That's the balance. Oh, yeah, they, yeah. They, yeah, that's very true. That matters. Like they, they love that fucking baby. They hate that they are almost killing it all the time. 
They wish like the they ve- weren't doing that. The very end when they're like left in the road after the, the you know, bank heist goes awry and the ink blows up and they're like, that's our baby too. You know, it's like yeah. they very much care about it. I Man, the brakes on all of these cars are insane that they just keep up. Ab- they're going like 85 miles an hour and they're just able to break within the, 10 feet of this the, baby every time. The, the brakes are insane, but the wetness level of the streets in Arizona during the chase scene <laughs> is incredible. I mean, it, what, it, what is going on? It's so dry there. Like, and it's just happening? everything is slick. They're doing 360s. The cage is running through the rain. Listen, I get wet a fucking piece of asphalt for some cinematic quality, but... Maybe base your movie in like Oregon. Equally yeah. a weird state, more liberal. I get it. Maybe, maybe it was Idaho, Utah. <laughs> you, maybe it was Utah. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the. And then I woke up of this movie for sure. Mm. The the whole finale is just fucking awesome. Like the whole showdown with the biker. Yeah. The biker like Lenny biking malls, man. He's biking into the bank, and then he's like biking in the yeah. alley. Like that's another her. that that guy to me is such like a Pee Wee's Playhouse type guy. Yeah, because it's like there's no conceivable human who's ever been like that or ever will be. <laughs> Like, but even like when that, he that, that man's just a cartoon we get that moment at the end where he explodes you know he faces off with nick cage and he takes the grenades off and then his boot falls and then the little baby boots fall too <laughs> and just like one ear one one tear goes down my cheek he's <laughs> mm. like i'm sorry you you so, think that he's going to be this like voiceless kind of like antagonist you know and then right. when he actually has that meeting with Mr. Arizona and he speaks almost very cordially like a, as a bounty hunter you're kind of like oh okay i thought this was going to be like a voiceless goon but he's actually like out for something cuz that's a that's a good scene yeah that's a very good scene by the way um maybe i'm just thinking about this because i i've been bringing up peewee's playhouse a lot and that movie I brought up when we talked about it is like the entire basis of SpongeBob is that movie. Right. And like, you know, if you Google it, I ended up finding out that that is true. It's not just a vibe. I got Uh, this motorcycle guy character. Remember the SpongeBob movie, the motorcycle. It's him. No, but that's oh, him. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, essentially. Yeah. Den- yeah just like Dennis a faceless. Hitman. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just like an insanely scary guy on a motorcycle. Isn't that voiced by Alec Baldwin? Ew. I said, yeah, because he has that whole thing where he talks about how Woody Allen probably didn't do it. <laughs> Man, that was really weird in the SpongeBob movie whenever that happened. Yeah, when Woody Allen showed up in the SpongeBob movie. I was movie. like, wait, you mean the, the guy pa- who won the Oscar the, for the pa- Patrick? What, what, what's going on over there in your in your coconut? <laughs> Sandy's in the very absurd. Sandy's in the bubble over there. Mm. <laughs> There's it's that nonsense. like there's that really weird thing where SpongeBob and Patrick adopt a baby and like Patrick has a weird relationship with that baby like a little <laughs> too close. He, to- yeah, he ends up adopting it once it once the clam turns well, you like gotta four bring, months. Well, you got to bring Patrick into this. He didn't do anything wrong because Woody <laughs> no. Allen would be able to take advantage of him the most easily. So your <laughs> Squidward defense- does play the clarinet. So, Ernest, you're saying you're a Patrick Squidward defender in the is, same way listen, that Alec Baldwin is a he's Woody in the Allen same jazz defender. group as no, Woody Allen. Squidward is the Woody Allen. You, of it's, it's, no, it's plank, I'm, I'm always saying this. It's Plankton and Pearl. It's right there. Oh, Pearl. Well, Pearl is who uh, Squidward's Woody Allen is fucking on. <laughs> he's fucking on her because she. Yeah, you she know how Woody what? Allen always like writes himself to be like fucking like a way hotter person than who would ever talk to Woody yeah, Allen and in real life. younger. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um. 
isn't it great that we we got louis when we did like we caught him because mm-hmm. like we would have gotten some like a lot of insufferable we would have gotten the manhattans <laughs> of louis we would have gotten a, yeah just been like hey isn't it kind of weird that this guy who has allegations of having sex with a yeah. child has a movie where he talks about how he's dating a 16 year old who's to say i mean he made i love you, who's to say <laughs> Spongebob, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're being so loud, jellyfishing. I'm trying to wake up. I don't like cheese. I'm like Krabby Patty. <laughs> and my, my boss is the uh, lobsters. I can't have shellfish. You know, it's not kosher. <laughs> Him like picking up Mr. Krabs out of a big pot on the ground. <laughs> and, like holding it in front of him comically. In a montage. <laughs> okay, guys, I think we hit peak. We bought a mic. I'm out. <laughs> this is this is the new uh, Schindler's List rewatchable. <laughs> is there a way to my my question though? Is there a way to flesh out Squidward being Woody Allen without being very overly anti-Semitic? <laughs> I don't know because oh, of the big nose. No, I see. I didn't say that. You know. Oh no. no. Oh, no. <laughs> I was I gonna go for the brown say. collared shirt and the New Balances squid yeah. offer. You know how, and and how oh, it's Jewish people cl- have like eight legs and it's the clarinet. <laughs> it's the clarinet. They're in the same jazz group. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, <sighs> this was a this was a really good movie. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie ends on a kind of touching, beautiful. It does. Uh, kind of button it does um and it also it's within the realm of reality because like i said everyone is stupid and everyone's insane in this so the like trey wilson very well might just let them drop the baby at his fucking house and like let that be that you know i did, he's that insane is a, too that is a nit to pick for me i was like brother you're gonna let your kidnappers just stay in your house as you like <laughs> turn the light off and walk out yeah. of the room that that part was crazy he was like all right well i you know, get on out of here you know, you know where the window is are you fucking kidding me right now it's like it's a a little bit and again maybe it's because of just knowing all the other coen brothers maybe but it's like it's so like cheery and clean of an ending that you're like Wait, aren't there like repercussions at all right. for any of the events that happened here? I mean, the the conversation that that Cage and Holly Hunter have in the car, I think, is kind of like the emotional climax of the movie where they mm-hmm. get to really realize like how how kind of terrible they are. I mean, they're not like horrible people, but they are extremely flawed. Well, they, and they come steal to terms a baby, with that. and that's not great. Yeah, man. Also, yeah. how horrible would it have been for, for Nathan Jr. to grow up being like fully white trash and so traumatized by his entire life and then like eventually finding out that he could have been a millionaire yeah. son. Yeah. And had yeah. like the best life ever. I almost expected Nathan Arizona to be like, you know what? Keep him. <laughs> I almost and then too. they leave the baby on the roof and they actually do end up killing the child. Y'all earned him. By the way, shout out to like the 20 different babies who played Nathan Jr. in this <laughs> yeah. fucking movie. And all of the other babies too during yeah. that crazy sequence. Of of varying ages. Because at the end of the movie, this is a much younger baby than it it's, was in the beginning. No, well, it's funny because like they have that in there, like these babies, and they're like, yeah, they're like newborn. That baby is like at least like nine months old. Like those babies are That's pretty fucking baby. big. Baby like, got a noggin. Yeah. That's a thick baby, I can tell you that. In a non-sexual yeah, way. Like in a non-Woody baby- Allen way. <laughs> oh my <laughs> <It's> the babies. 
is the big bone. <laughs> you you got to adapt him, and then it's all legal. Look, I, you never I think know I what's got gonna the... happen with the babies. Okay, once you get them in the house, <laughs> I think I got the best one. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's what Woody Allen said whenever he went to the adoption agency with Mia Farrow? Probably, <laughs> but probably. Um, I'm gonna die. I I I like the I like when um. Uh, Nathan Arizona senior is getting like interviewed by the cops and they're like, well, which one did they get? And he's like, I think Nathan junior. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, this could have been any of those fucking. Videos. And just like any pl- podcast host, he plugs the fucking end of the thing. He's like, hell yeah. Buy all your unfurnished, unpainted furniture. <laughs> and that way I respect my name Arizona. still is an earth. Nathan Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Um, the last note that I wrote is great banjo score. Of course. Yeah. The score is really good in this film. I, uh, My dad I actually like had the score on cassette really? tape. Yes. So the banjo-y kind of tones. And then actually there's a lot of like the classical music they play. I think they play mm-hmm. like Beethoven in the movie and whatnot as well. So that was, I remember that like yodeling almost. Yeah, it, it is pretty much yodeling. Uh, yeah. I mean, the guy who did it, uh, Carter Burwell, uh, he did, did some, he bunch did Fargo, um, he just no country recently he did three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, um, which is a film that we do not talk about on this. Franny McD got his ass in there. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Uh, he was in charge of the musical department of Twilight, which, hey, we wouldn't have super massive black hole if it wasn't for this guy. Interesting. <laughs> he also did some Spike Jones films. Yeah. Her love in there. Um, no, that it, was um, Arcade Fire. Oh, that was Arcade Fire. Shouts out to my man, Will. Butler, um, if I had to also say something about the chase scene, that was like the moment of the movie where I was like, damn, the Coen brothers like edited the shit out of this. And then I looked it up and they actually didn't edit this movie, which is pretty uh, abnormal for them. They actually had Michael R. Miller edit this movie. So I wonder why that is interesting. Also, I I wanted to shout out uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, the cinematographer who would go on to be a director of his own, made the Men in Black movies. Mm -hmm. Great movies. Great. And the... um, the a series of unfortunate events reboot on Netflix, which I like. Oh, no, Patrick Harris. We we know you like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Men in Black, great fucking movie. Yeah, of course, fucking banger hey, movie, yeah. dude. Yeah, I love Chris Hemsworth. I know. I mean, hey, I'm a big Trisha oh, Thomas shit. guy. <laughs> no, I don't want to watch that. Tessa Thompson is my favorite man. Look, I mean, Black. I, you guys are skipping around Barry Sonnenfeld's greatest credit, which is Wild Wild West. Oh, we're going to the wild, yeah, wild, west. wild west. We're going wild, straight wild, wild west. to the wild, wild west. Wiki wall, wiki, wiki wall. <laughs> well, Stephen, is there anything else you want to say about raising Arizona? I love the movie. I, I, I guess I never got to talk about myself, but I met <laughs> Ernest, through, <laughs> which is great. I met Ernest through uh, first and final frames. And that's all a, the time we have. So sorry. I got to uh, go. All right. Bye. Um, our, um, our, no, Three plus at three and a half hour fucking mammoth first and final frames film fights, film fights. And we we've we've got to know. I, I just love the uh, Internet film community. I appreciate all the people I've met through it. And that's how I got to know Ernest first and foremost. And also just like the fact that there's so many people out there that care about movies and are willing to like share their experience was with them. I watched Raising Arizona with someone who had seen it for the first time. Uh the time that I watched it last night. So it was a very interesting kind of 
perspective. And I think just listening to you guys talk about watching this movie for the first time is also super cool. And I love when um, I can listen to people I care about talk about movies that I also care about. And I think that the fact that we got to meet through such a cool like format of it being the internet and everyone not being like a troll dickhead is super rad as well. And I think that it could show that people can connect. I mean, you guys are in fucking Florida. You guys are in the pit of despair. Mm-hmm. You We're know in what the I mean? Boogie Nights pool. Yeah. You, I, and you guys are here in San Francisco, the Boogie Nights pool with John C. Riley looking right over my shoulder after nailing a mm. sick backflip. So Margarita's baby. Margarita's baby. So it's been a, it's been super cool to get to know everybody and I'm glad to support everyone's podcast and do it. So if you guys ever want to have me on, I'd love to do it again. And yeah, of course, I'm, I'm, man. I'm stoked to uh, get to talk about racing Arizona. And to me, I just think as a movie, it's super important as like an indie piece of filmmaking and especially as like a good setting stone for the Coen brothers, future movies. I think they showcase quite a lot here. And I think yeah. a re- rewatching it a second time really does open up a lot of kind of little quirks and cool like moments that kind of expose itself throughout the movie as well. So I hope you guys do end up watching this movie a second time. And also I own it now. I went ahead and just bought it. It was only like eight bucks. So I just, I, Oh, you got the blue. Oh, I got the blue. I, wait, you think I'm going to buy this movie on fucking pedestrian digital 720 P. Yeah. We didn't do the categories. Let's see the categories. categories. Well, we got to do the categories. Real quick, Steven, where, because I know you've seen, uh, like, have you seen every Coen Brothers film? I've seen, I would say, about 90% of Coen Brothers films. Where does this rank for you in the Coen Brothers filmography? Ooh, I love that question, Blog Boy. I would say I'm for me, <laughs> the percent. I would say for me, this is probably ultimately in my top five nice if i had to i would probably say it's solid in that number five slot i mean Um, it's worthy it's a really good one it's very worthy i do think that my personal rankings as a good friend of the pod uh young jake can attest my favorite coen brothers movie is the sad boy classic inside lewin davis and then and then i do uh go to I'd probably say No Country for Old Men, Hail Caesar. That's a joke. Uh, Big Lebowski. <laughs> um, and then, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou for me is like a nostalgic flick is probably number four. Yes. And I think Raising Arizona is probably a little bit of a better movie for sure. But I think the the music in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou carries through my life a little bit that I need to put that movie in front of it. I am a man. And I love Clooney. Sorrow. dog. So our categories, best cage moment. Oh, that, that's true. I, I cannot get the, the pantyhose. I can't get the vision of, yeah, of, of him pantyhose like roller the skating room. through the, um, particularly through the aisles of the shopping. Yeah, yeah, of the, and somehow just everybody, it brought me to Florida vibes of just how everyone has a gun on them at all times. Apparently. Yeah, that and, and pantyhose pantyhose hose on their heads, you. right? You guys always have pantyhose on it's your head. Yeah. Normal well, thing. I mean, you're, you can see us. The listeners can't see us, but we do all have pantyhose on our heads. As over our faces. Yes. Over your yeah. faces. Brother, we, we don't did, wear we didn't masks. buy this Mac, brother. <laughs> we, don't, we don't wear masks in Florida. We wear pantyhose. <laughs> pantyhose. You you agree with that, Steven? That vote, I, the pantyhose scene, or do you have another candidate? Pantyhose scene for sure. I think the ending fight scene with Nick Cage as well. I think there's like two great moments. Somehow they got Nick Cage to be dragged behind a motorcycle, which I thought was he pretty gets money. His ass and he gets his ass whooped. And the way Nick Cage reacts when that throwing knife goes in that piece of wood is so like his face is like 
this is everything I've ever wanted to do cinematically in a movie, you know, as that's, an actor. Yeah. Like, that's a great, <laughs> yep. I, real quick, I have questions. So, like, Lenny Smalls is a manifestation of Cage. But, like, what? Like, I don't, I just, I don't, I just kind of went along with it because it's, yeah, it's like a dream. You're not supposed to really question anything that's happening, but it's like, why are they the same? Good cage or bad cage? This is good use of this is great cage. Good, great, amazing cage. Top tier. I would put this top tier cage. Yeah, they understood exactly how you should use cage before he had even been used. Yeah, it it was pretty much like his coming out party in a way. He had done some other stuff before. Like he did a Francis Ford Coppola movie a little bit. He was he had a tiny part in Fast Times. He, well, he he was he, all of his lines were cut out of Fast Times because he was bad. Oh, <laughs> and the end, Cameron Crowe also did not like him at all. You know, he is a Coppola, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we yeah. talked a lot. Nicholas Coppola. Would Nicholas Coppola? Okay, I want to make sure if it wasn't for. What if he went by Nick Coppola? Like, what what would what would be different? You know, he'd be a winer. He'd be making wine up north from me. Making mm. that, making that shirah. Mm. What kind of wine would go with this movie? Um, toilet wine. <laughs> toilet yeah. wine, yeah. Yeah, jail yeah. wine. Jail yeah. wine. Which yeah, you just gotta piss. have some jail it's just wine. Urine that's just sat in the toilet for yeah. a John. John Goodman shows up when they break out of prison. He's like, "I brought you some fucking toilet water." <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, he's like, "What's that smell?" And he's like, "Oh, that's what you're about to drink, guys." It's a yeah. Budweiser because whenever they enter into the house, there is somehow like. 274 just empty cans of Budweiser. They're just littering this trailer that they're living in. And it's like, how did two men possibly drink this much beer and are still like they crushed alive? Dude. What what else you got for categories? That's all that Hunter came up with. I don't you guys can do more. Yeah, this is a running do you, thing. You have any any oh what's the best cage moment? Oh, we already yeah, did the that. Yeah, the panties. <laughs> you have yeah. any ideas, Steven, off the top of your head? I would say I mean, if we're doing Nick Cage categories, I would also like to K- give Cageagories. Cageagories. There we go. I'd like no. to give. Uh, I think in every movie, Nick Cage kind of goes for that like sappy kind of sad moment to show his range. Mm-hmm. And I would say he does a great job in this movie at nailing it, especially towards the end when he's like, "Sir, we're actually going to go our separate ways," and kind of that vibe. But in the future. Cageagories. I feel like in like The Rock and all those other type of great flicks that Cage is in, those sappy moments are a lot more. Uh, let's just call them saturated with Cageisms. You know, mm-hmm. he kind of tries to play the sweet guy too hard, and it's just incredibly unbelievable. Yes, so, so I want to give him credit for doing a great job in this moment, like movie with the dramatic moments. That reminds me of another category that we haven't done yet. Another Cageagory, if you will. Um, how many cages would you give? This. this isn't based on his performance. This, this is, is a based low, on how this is a low cage high for me. grade he this is. This is like a four or five. I was going to say like it's like a three or four. Like okay. I'd even say it's a little bit lower. He is a straight yeah, he doesn't man. doesn't cage seems, out. And that does not happen in almost any movie. He never plays a straight man at any point. Out of how many? What's the max? Ten. Ten? It's- I'd say he gets to cage out. It's just not like on a hundred all the time. But like there's, you know, there's a scene where he like he gets slapped and he basically is like looking to camera once he's slapped. That's he goes true. like full that cross eyes. <laughs> like <laughs> that's a good moment. You're right. Okay. You, you still get to see how close together his yeah. eyes are. And for that reason, I'm gonna give it five and a half cases. Yeah. Fair. See, yeah. I was gonna I was gonna give it a six because he does have that leash to do what he wants to do. And especially like the movies that you guys referenced before this, I do think that he gets to do the most with what he's given in this movie as an early cage movie, specifically. Like he gets to go 
wacky cage here, you know, and kind of show more of that like weirdo that he is. And just his whole character. I mean, obviously, like we've talked through the whole movie, but like he is kind of like a lovable scumbag in this movie that just clearly like gets off. Yeah, he's a sweetheart. He's He's an outlaw. He's an outlaw who like misses the kind of action. Like you said, the juice. He's missing that kind of like energy that he has before the simple like family life that he's settling into. So I I just think that this movie really does a good representation of letting him also shine in those weirder moments. I mean, the prologue of him talking to Holly Hunter is very, uh, sexual but like oh, yeah. kind of like weird comedy cage and i think that just for that i'd probably give this out of um and i've like, seen just, Pete cage i'm giving it a six last like, last week we talked about like cage as a romantic lead with share yeah do we feel like he's a good romantic lead no he's not a good of course not <laughs> no. i mean he gets more of a romantic like he's a better romantic lead in moonstruck if that's yeah. what you're asking um here's here's the final category and we are going to do this every episode Recaging couch. Yes. Because we did this for Moonstruck. Who in 1987, who else c- could fill in here? Hmm. It that's it. This one is really tricky. Who like who else was in the you know in the Cohen's bag? So that's why I was I was actually thinking of the uh the um Cohen's bag, and really their guy who they latch onto very early on is John Turturro. And could John Turturro do this role? It's a very different movie, but I feel like John Turturro can dial it up to 11 mm. and also can be more of a straight man. And Turturro, I don't know. Because also they they have to get greenlit. And I think that like a, maybe a good part of why Barton Fink didn't work out so great is that Turturro is just not your leading man. Yeah. yeah. Um, he... Don't 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 immediately dismiss this, but Hanks was a comedy guy in the 80s. Uh, He's really he's pretty good at blending with whatever movie he's in. Uh, It's just a matter of could he bring enough of his own weird sauce because he doesn't have a lot of weird sauce. It's about if he well, it's also about the physicality because that's a big thing with Cage. Well, I'm also thinking Forrest Gump because he has that character has almost a similar vibe. (laughs) Like weirdly enough, it has like the bizarre voice and like the strange uh, posture. I don't know, though. I I, like a simple guy. If, if I'm making 1987 and like who would work with the Cohen brothers and like take a risk to do this movie at the time, you know, yeah. I kind of think like almost like a Robin Williams could come oh. in. That's, I was actually just thinking Robin Williams. As well, yeah. Like Robin Williams, kind of- he has the physical comedy. He has the, the verbato sometimes. And like it would give him a rare chance to kind of play a, a sexy scumbag. And I think it would have been a role he might have been interested in. Another uh, person who came to mind uh, that it's a person who would never say yes to doing this role, but I would just be fascinated to see them take this role. Give me 1987 Jack Nicholson. Jacko? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he could do it. He's, he's so old. No, no. 1987. I think that he's like he could, old. he's still yeah, old. He's but like, old. I mean, he's been old forever, but I still like I think that. Maybe you need like 1977 Jack Nicholson in this role, but like he has a great physical comedy side to him that kind of got lost over the years. Kind of on that same vein, last week we didn't land on the best choice until after we stopped recording 
for recaging Moonstruck, which was Al Pacino. Yes. And I feel like Pacino in this movie he, would be this, amazing. The, a, new, a new category is actually, could Al Pacino have done this? <laughs> <laughs> could Al Pacino just take over all of Cage's career? If, Al Pacino, if Al Pacino basically Pacino is didn't like de- the good Nick If Cage. Al Pacino <laughs> didn't develop a crippling cocaine addiction in the 80s, would he have just become yeah, but Nick like, Cage? But that's what makes him like Nick Cage. <laughs> Like that's he why he do that much cocaine to like reach Nick Cage's. But level. they never they never market correct each other. No, they they're still able to coach well, different they're, ages. They're, yeah, uh, different. also obviously Pacino has a gear that Cage just like will never have. But like, yeah, ah, Ooh, wow. <laughs> they never she made a movie. Great ass. That Cage yeah. could say that fucking line. <laughs> yeah, dude, Heat Two. I'm telling you, let's go Heat Two. I'm greenlighting it now for the We Bought a Mic streaming service. They um, never made a movie together yet. <laughs> I would love yep. to see that. I I listened to a podcast a couple of years ago with Al Pacino. It's funny. Like I feel like he never left the Heat energy. Like he's just still like he's so manic all the time about everything. I just found an article from Hollywood.com from July 2010. Is Nicolas Cage the new Al Pacino? Oh, wow. Look at that. That's an interesting thought. I that's like the way past the prime of both of them. Yeah. Their timelines just don't. It's so this is going to sound weird because he wouldn't be able to do as much of the over the top stuff, but like the chase scene wouldn't work as well. But I think for some of the, like the more chill moments, 1987, like Richard Dreyfus. Sure. Wow. I think the Dreyfus could work. I think the Dreyfus, Dreyfus to- and Holly Hunter actually might be a, like a more believable romantic interest. You're going older. I know, but I'm just thinking of like just people of that era. And I think that Dreyfus has kind of similar energy that could be slotted into this film. He is a little bit too old for the role, but also Nick Cage was old when he actually became an actor. We talked about that uh, in um, Moonstruck, Moonstruck too. He was yeah. what, like 28. I mean, the, the thing is, is that during this, you, you almost kind of have to pluck actors out of their time because in this era in the 80s, you were pretty much stuck with like Michael big- Douglas. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. yeah, but I was also going to say like, <laughs> that would suck. Like, like <laughs> Stallone. Fatal Attraction, Michael Douglas in this like movie. Like Stallone and Schwarzenegger types. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that Dolph. doesn't fit into this movie at yeah. all. Could Jean-Claude Van Damme have <laughs> seamlessly taken over? Could Val Kilmer, Val Kilmer just take over this role and there be a moment where he has pantyhose over his face and he says, for me, the action is the juice. Mm, no. He, I think that Val Kilmer thinks that he could do it. <laughs> yo, yo, it. W- what about Christopher Walken? <laughs> <laughs> that could be good. That's, I'd watch it. Kind of, I would watch it. The thing is, I think, he, really I think awesome. it, I think it could be like a beautiful disaster, but like, I would definitely check that um, out. <sighs> John Cusack? No, no, he's, he's a too bad straight. actor, dude. That guy is not good. <laughs> wow. He's, also, he's too straight. He's too straight, man. Yeah. What needs somebody what with like movie? a little bit crazy? I kind of I think Robin Williams is my favorite. Okay, okay. Joan so Cusack. Okay, all right. Now you're talking. Well, now you're talking. We she can, did she can we, do it. We did just watch being John Malkovich fairly recently. So that's like the one movie where John John Cusack is actually like good. Man. I don't Man, know about I this. Know all this John what, I'm, I'm, I'm also curious. No, we're yeah, not going to talk. 
Better Why'd Off you- Dead. You got to watch Better Off Dead. That's an 80s classic movie where he's just trying to commit suicide the whole time because a girl doesn't like him. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, it's a ridiculous flick. Um, oh, 85. Okay. I'll check it out. It's a good Ryan flick. I, I didn't know that you had so much like John Cusack hate. He's just so like. What's the record shot movie that he's in? Uh, high Fidelity. High Fidelity. Yeah, high, yeah. What's wrong with High Fidelity? I mean, it's one movie. You, we the- just. <laughs> Just saying that about what's every the movie, movie where he's like a spy and goes back to his high school reunion? That's a good one too. I forgot when that. I one don't is. know that one. In 2012, are both Cusacks? I thought you movie? were naming the year. <laughs> no, the film. Are, <laughs> the are, film. are both of the Cusack siblings ripping off Woody Allen? The answer is yes. The real yeah. question. And their mannerisms, like very much so. The real question is, could Nick Cage do 1408? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Yeah, that's a John Cusack uh, vehicle. Vehicle. We have to wrap this up. I'm gonna yes. kill myself. <laughs> Wait, Tom Cruise? No, we talked not, about this last. Not week. in this. John Tom Cruise, I think, actually works in Moonstruck. I don't think that Tom Cruise. Works I think as well Tom Cruise is the only person who would actually have less chemistry with a romantic lead than Nick Cage does. Okay, speed round. Look, Tom Cruise can have some romantic chemistry in some movies, but just only whenever it's like kind of slightly abusive, like Jerry Maguire. Yeah, it has to be a thing where he's like just relentlessly pursuing a chick and she like kind of wants it. Speed round. Bill Murray? No, because yeah, no. Bill Murray, I thought about that. Bill Murray is very much like, huh, I'm in a movie. You can't have that with this movie. Uh, Willem Dafoe. No Maybe. way. <laughs> uh, no. He'd take, he'd, take it, he'd take it almost past where Cage takes it, I feel. <laughs> it would it would be like he just thinks that he he would play it too straight throughout the entire movie. Like, yes, I'm in a prestige. He'd drama. play it, yeah, you play it method, and he would try to find like the the true fear in his character. My 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 not my nightmare is Willem Dafoe in a pantyhose mask. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's my the deepest sensual dream. <laughs> that's we we differ there. That's the the California Florida split. For us, I've, I've no, I've had that one too. Where yeah, he has a pantyhose mask, and then Robert Pattinson is like a seagull. Yeah, but he's also like has a giant dick. Hard. It's like yeah, you guys are just describing like the image that I see in my head right before I climax. Um, Martin Short. Uh, that'd be ridiculous. That well, that that's logical just because uh, it, this is an absurdist world, and he he was my pick to play SpongeBob. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like he's an insane man. Mm-hmm. Steve Martin. Steve Martin. Back maybe? then, Steve Martin was way more. Absurdist. He definitely. I mean, 87 yeah. was already like past his peak. Yeah. Because Martin's like a 70s peak. He would have said no because he also was trying to be serious. Um. Okay. Last one. Uh, Michael J. Fox. Absolutely not. No, <laughs> not, too not, bright. not too, too, too out there Too like on the two. He's just. He's it would be a lit. different movie. Yeah, it It'd would be a different more, movie. He's yeah. one he's more too, too old for this role, but uh, would fit into this movie. Just put this guy in as like another uh, inmate that escapes uh, prison. Leslie Nielsen from the Naked Gun movies. Yeah, but that, he just why isn't that why didn't that guy get cast in an early Coen Brothers film? I know he's not going to replace Nick Cage, but but when you see his face, you you already have like a preconception of what that movie's going to be. Yeah, you're like not serious. Like yeah. this is a little. This it's going to be on the nose. Film is not serious. <laughs> of course, no, but it does. It does have like a certain like emotional core well, to that's, it. Well, that yeah, that's why I'm obsessed with the tone of this and a lot of Cohen shit is because this isn't parodic. It's not a parody. 
Um, and that Nielsen's whole thing is he is like as good as it gets yeah. at one thing, genre parody. And yeah, and yeah. throw everything else out the window. Yeah, and this is not that. Like these these people are it's taking, a folk tale. Yeah, it, it totally yeah. exactly. They're taking their lives dead seriously. They don't know that they're in the middle of a joke. <laughs> you know, uh it, it's a very special type of tone. And I think Nick Cage ultimately was the right choice for this one. Yeah, same like, here. I wouldn't recast him. Well, we got to wrap this baby up. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Stephen, for coming on. We'll have you on again soon. Woo! We're down this Nick Cage journey. We'll um, have you on for the bracket episode of, of Nick Cage versus. <laughs> versus yeah, that's a great it. idea. I love that. That's, just a, that's a whole podcast. That's a spinoff. Podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be spinning my own Nick Cage movies back recently. So if you guys don't fill an episode, let me know. I, I might uh, be watching a couple more. I really want to watch Matchstick Men. I haven't seen that we, movie. Hey, we did, Man is yeah, we have, just did an app. We have a listener yeah. who recommended it, and we were all kind of like, I mean, I guess it's you know, like it's, it's very it's forgotten like by the sense here, of time. Ridley Scott is what yeah. I got. Dude, it's really fun. It's yeah, really it's good. a fun movie. It's fucking. It's just like, what if Nick Cage had AD, had an OCD? Severe, like, yeah. what if Nick Cage was Tony Shalhoub and Monk? Yeah. Exactly. Hell yeah, and it got well, kind of dark got dark quick but i love you yeah. boys thank you so much for having me on it's been a, a great you. time yeah, talking cage on, cage fights with you this yeah. is, i think this great is time actually talking woody allen i think you. that this oh, format is the best way to meet someone <laughs> yeah it is it is but it's like going a, to a movie with the, someone on a first date. It's like, we don't really have to talk, but yeah. we can talk about the movie after. It's just like, oh, we're going to skip the foreplay of actually seeing a movie. Exactly. We're just going to talk. And also, and right also, yeah. And also like in, in an actual date, like the girl would want me to shut up after like, the, after like <laughs> yeah. one hour of talking about yeah. Nick Cage. <laughs> oh, after my third Woody Allen impersonation, she's gone, bro. <laughs> she, she, yeah. She's like, I don't know if i want to go and see mia pharaoh and walks away this guy is like really good at his woody allen impersonations like well thank you so much for coming on man it's been a blast uh let the people know where they can find you and if you want to plug anything plug away yeah i got uh, my twitter that i appreciate if people follow it's usually depressing thoughts but sometimes some fun humor that's stephen baker eight which is also my letterbox handle. If you guys ever want to keep up with what I'm watching, I, I really do enjoy that platform, even though I don't use it enough. I always check it and uh, see what my people that I respect are watching. And then outside of that, um, Too Broke for Therapy. That's my podcast. You guys can find that on Spotify and Apple. And yeah, it's a therapy podcast where pretty much we just get random listener questions submitted anonymously and we try our best to answer them. It's a great time. And we've had a lot of cool people on and we're going to start up our uh, new season soon. And I'm also considering launching a film podcast myself, but we will see that uh, down the road. Not Yeah, I, I was curious if you had been uploading lately because I know you had said that you were taking a break since the pandemic. Hit. Yeah, the pandemic hit. And then, you know, we did a couple of first and final frames over the uh, the Zoom call here. And I figured it was actually not that hard to do. And now it's kind of become the standard in podcasting to be able to get people on from all over the place. And, you know, you don't really need an in-room connection all the time. Although I do see you three boys sitting in the same room and I do appreciate that energy. We, I, we, we are risking our very lives. For of course. The form i mean you walk outside in florida you're risking your lives i've recently been vaccinated and i've been thinking Ooh. a lot uh about my future endeavors i actually just stepped away from my current job to kind of think about what i want to do in the future so i've got a lot of stuff brainstorming and i'll keep you guys updated but for now i appreciate you guys having me on again and uh yeah check me out where i said 
Absolutely. Absolutely, man. We will have you on again soon. Please check out Steven and his uh, links in the show notes, including his podcasts and Twitter. And for us, you can follow us at We Bought a Mic on Twitter and email us at webottamic.gmail.com. Please spread the word. Let the people know about We Bought a Nick and the good work that we're doing over here. Trying to find out what, what's going on with this cage guy. So we got two down next week is um, a little movie called Vampire's Kiss, which uh, seems to be uh, a big, big, big sort of cult uh, movie from Who, the cage. Who's on for this one? Uh, Christine. Nice. Yes. Yeah. So we'll have another guest. We're, we're going to have a guest up the wazoo. For Everyone all wants Woo! to talk about this man. Yeah. Yeah. And, He's and loved. It's, it's, it's going to be a doozy. So stick around. Uh, please donate if you're able to at anchor.fm slash we bought a mic. And uh, keep it real, keep it wabammy, keep it fresh, stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Smack DeMarco out. Bye bye. Bye.